Happy holidays, everybody, and welcome to Midday on this shortest day of the year. For most of our listening area, the sun rose this morning at 7.24 a.m. It will set tonight, actually this afternoon, at 4.47. Today is the winter solstice, the first day of astronomical winter in the northern hemisphere. Starting tomorrow, the days get incrementally longer until the longest day of the year in June. So the great philosopher-scientist Ashley Stirner gave an invaluable peroration on the solstice today during Morning Edition. Here's some wisdom from Ashley. So, you know, the solstice is tonight. Yes, people say the solstice is the shortest day of the year, and there are just 9 hours and 24 minutes between sunrise and sunset today. But, of course, the solstice is not actually a day It is a moment in time. The solstice occurs when the sun's apparent path is farthest south of the Earth's equator. That moment occurs at 1027 tonight. Legend has it that at that precise moment, gravity's angel will descend from the nearest Lagrange point, exciting the Higgs field to the point of thermodynamic disequilibrium along the celestial sphere, and that is how you get ants. Yeah, that's pure nonsense. Uh, But the solstice is at 1027 tonight. Yep, that part's right. And there is a whole lot of nonsense uh, worked into that uh, little riff. But, uh, you know, it's it's always a good idea to consult Ashley Sterner when it comes to things scientific or philosophical. So happy holidays to Ashley and to everybody. I'm Tom Hall. We're going to spend some time with our precious sunlight today on the Midday News Wrap Year End Edition. Some of my colleagues on the WIPR News Team are joining me here in Studio A to talk about some of the big stories that they've covered in 2023. We'll begin with our news director, Matt Bush. Happy holidays. Good to see you, Matt. Happy holidays to you as well, Tom. So let's talk about uh, a story that you did. You covered Annapolis and the legislative session, um, and there was a, a, a couple of bills, a few bills, uh, having to do with changing how we vote in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Very uh, crucial and, of course, you know, top of mind for a lot of people. Uh, what happened? So um, next year being the big election year, I mean, it's the biggest election of our lifetimes. We say that every four years. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so next year, uh, some of the biggest changes. First, this one bill that we're, we're going to talk about changed the primary date. It was originally in April, and that conflicted with Passover in 2024. It was originally April 23rd. So now the new primary date is May 14th in Maryland. And we're going to have two very large primary here in Baltimore, obviously statewide, it's the uh, Democratic Senate primary, uh, mostly between Congressman David Trone and Prince George's County Executive Angela also Brooks, but we also have the mayoral primary here in Baltimore, Brandon Scott and Sheila Dixon. So it's going to be a very, very big primary date uh, in Maryland. So what one change was made was on absentee ballots for those who are voting before Election Day. Um, the common, uh, A common mistake, at least with ballots that prevented them from being counted, was whether the, uh, whether the ballot didn't have a signature or whether it was an unclear signature. Signature, so and of course, uh, the, a lot more people started voting because of COVID. Yes, w- w- during COVID, and so I think they're finding people more and more are in that habit, right? And I think you know, as we're seeing, you know, uh, voter turnout rates rise. We've certainly seen that in the last eight years. I think one reason for that is people are beginning to discover they don't always have to vote on election day. You can vote earlier and earlier, which I think is great for all of us. So, with more and more people doing that, maybe unfamiliar with the signature bid, you have to sign the you have to sign that ballot to ensure it's counted. Now, in some cases, it's not signed or the 
signature is unclear. So what the the legislature passed essentially is some ways to uh, more easier ways to cure that ballot, basically meaning fixing that mistake. So now, so curing <clears throat> the ballot, you know, it's interesting. It's like curing a ham, which sometimes you yes, can do in my office because yes. the heat doesn't work so well in this building. But you, uh, <laughs> you just yeah, light a fire and yeah. the smoke goes right into it. Yes, <laughs> right. you could do that if you wanted, but uh, <laughs> but but it, it, if the signature is is uh, wrong in some way, there will be now. It'll be easier to fix it. Sure. Yeah. And there's a text portal email. So uh, you can do it through your cell phone. You can do it through a text. You can do it through an email now with which was passed by the legislature uh, this past year. So that'll make it easier. The text portal, I think that there was some concern over that about privacy concerns, but uh, we do a lot of things through text now and each individual person will get a, a specific uh, text message coding uh, to make sure that they are the person signing that ballot through the text message or confirming that it is their ballot if it doesn't have a signature. So that's a way that people can fix the mistakes with the ballots, and that's as this becomes a more popular way to vote, uh, something that the, the General Assembly felt it needed to address ahead of, of the 2024 election. And, you know, here in Maryland, we're making voting easier and there's mm-hmm. so many states around the country, particularly in the Republican-led states, in which voting is made more complicated and more difficult. Uh, you know, there's voter suppression laws, uh, hundreds of them, uh, being passed and proposed uh, in legislatures all around the country. So it's it's a good sign that here mm-hmm. in Maryland we're trying to make it as easy as possible to cast a ballot. Right. Before coming here, I was in North Carolina for six years, and that was every year. There was a new, seemed like a new requirement. They you know passed photo ID, and it was ruled unconstitutional, and now it's going through through there. So, yeah, it's a little different up here um, in Maryland, though I will say North Carolina had great early voting hours that you had sites that you could go to where Maryland could catch up on on doing that in this uh, if it wants to emulate more ways to, to make it easier to vote. Yeah. And now with the Colorado ruling, the Colorado Supreme Court deciding to uh, take Donald Trump's name off of the ballot there because of his involvement in the January 6th insurrection, uh, there are uh, movements here uh, to uh, influence the or, or, or to lobby the Secretary of State mm-hmm. uh, here to take uh, Trump's name off the ballot, even in Maryland. I mean, depending how the Supreme Court mm-hmm. decides uh, the Colorado case, because it's almost uh, surely going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, just just who you can vote for and the way you vote uh, is going to be very top of mind for for all of us. Absolutely. Another thing the General Assembly passed this year, which I certainly think journalists are going to like, but I think the general public might too, is that we'll get results a little quicker Mm -hmm. uh, because previously they were not allowed to process all the absentee ballots before Election Day. They could do it two days after Election Day, much less count them. Now, processing just means opening the envelopes and making sure there's a signature to validate the ballots. That made such a delay in getting all those ballots counted. And from people remember in last year's election in particular, there were three races that took almost till December to decide. Some, I think, may have even gone into December. The congressional race out in Western Maryland and the county executive races in Frederick and Anne Arundel counties took a very long time because it took so long to count these absentee ballots. So the legislature did okay, allowing them to process the ballots prior to Election Day that may allow the counting of the ballots to be a little faster. And I think uh, everybody probably likes that. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly like that because I host the uh, exactly. WYPR coverage of the election. And, we might have uh, things to talk about. Yeah, we might actually night. have some information to uh, to share with people. So, uh, again, it's, it's, it's interesting. I remember uh, four years ago... Uh, when we had a, a repeat of the mayoral race that we're going to have uh, coming up uh, next month, beginning, you know, sort of in earnest next month, uh, Brandon Scott trailed Sheila Dixon uh, on Election Day. And then after all those absentee ballots were counted, and it was, you know, some some time later, mm-hmm. uh, it turned out that he had uh, had bested her by not much, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of thousand votes. 
Uh, we have Bob Wallace also in that race this year. Uh, and by the way, uh, our conversations with the candidate series will begin soon. It'll begin uh, in January. As a matter of fact, on the 3rd of January, my first guest will be Sheila Dixon. We'll talk about that. Of course, another uh, big uh, happening in Annapolis was the historic inauguration of the first African-American governor uh, in the state of Maryland, Wes Moore. Uh, that was a big darn deal. We uh, had live coverage of it here. Uh, you were down in Annapolis. I was here with Terry Lee Scott, uh, in, uh, who's from, from Hood College, a wonderful uh, <clears throat> historian. Uh, that, that, was, that was quite a day, wasn't it? It absolutely was, and I think you know we're about a year away from that now. Um, so not to say we've forgotten about it, but, you know, a lot has happened, obviously, in the years since then. And we've seen Governor Moore's profile nationally, much less statewide, but nationally really begin to evolve and take shape, I think, in ways that we kind of thought would be. I think when he was elected, it was someone that he's someone that the Democratic Party certainly wanted to, uh, you know, to, to publicize and look as like, here's our next way of coming and all that. But it is, I think, important to go back and remember how important that was when uh, he was elected, and then how important the, the, the you know not just the inauguration itself, but the balls and things that happened around the city of Baltimore. This wasn't uh, you know every inauguration is a big deal, but this one took on a, obviously a much much bigger. Uh, m- much, much bigger focus this year because of Governor Moore and what was happening in the city of Baltimore with the, the balls and the amount of people that were taking part in it this year. I think, you know, it certainly stood out over past inaugural balls for governors. Yeah, and uh, our uh, WIPR reporter, Wamboy Kamau, was at one of those governor's ball, governor balls uh, here in Baltimore, and this is what she reported. Throngs of supporters filled the first floor of Baltimore's convention center to celebrate with Governor Moore and Lieutenant Governor Miller. As the music played and people danced, attendees were eager to share their expectations of Maryland's 63rd governor. For Vietnam veteran Mike Holy, income inequality is top of mind. The poor need to be addressed. It's not always about capitalism and and, the rich getting richer. Before entering the main ballroom, Governor Moore said his first order of business is to address public safety. We are uh, hyper-focused on making sure that we are getting and keeping violent offenders off of our streets. It's WIPR's Wamboy Kamau. So, Matt, on another festive note, you (laughs) reported on the latest state symbol. We now have a state spirit. The state spirit of Maryland is now rye whiskey. Rye distilling in Maryland goes back to the 1700s, but fell out of favor because of prohibition when farmers, by and large, stopped growing rye wheat. At least 51% of the grain used in distilling must be rye to give it its name. Republican State Senate Leader Steve Hershey says the eventual goal is to create something similar in Maryland to Kentucky's Bourbon Trail, a route through all that state's famed bourbon distilleries. We had a number of distilleries that came to us and they feel just with this simple designation that they will be able to promote that even more and hopefully we can be just as successful with uh, rye as they are with bourbon in Kentucky. Yeah, naming rye as the state spirit is, is not just a symbolic gesture. This really could uh, boost sales and revenue for both the uh, the industry and the state. And if anyone who's ever done the bourbon trail in Kentucky knows that, and I did a bit of it uh, last year, uh, it's something special. And if Maryland is able to create something like that, that's going to be something really, really special, too. All right. Matt Bush is uh, WIPR's news director. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank and, you. Uh, have a great holiday. Appreciate it. If you've just joined us, it's the Midday News Wrap year-end edition. We turn now now to John Lee, who covers Baltimore County for the WIPR News team. Happy holidays, John. Happy holidays. So among the many stories that you covered this year, you noticed a major concern with the county's legislative process. What did you find out? Well, I'm going to quote the uh, 
the great temptations to say Ebola confusion is what I found found there, Tom. Uh, in April, I had a story on how the sausage gets made at the Baltimore County Council that it at times is a it's a mad rush at the finish with the public having really little idea what last minute changes are being made to legislation. And Exhibit A was when the council passed a ban earlier this year on plastic bags. Yeah, let's give it a listen. When the council recently voted to ban single-use plastic bags, there was a flurry of last-minute amendments. It wasn't pretty. Anyone watching had a hard time following it, and council members themselves were getting confused by amendments. Here's a sample. In all of this confusion, I, I would like to definitely change my vote. We may have to do this again. Uh, the next item that is in your books, I believe, is not moving forward. But would we? I'm I'm looking at this list. Oh, uh, I'm uh, the one in your books. I don't think that I've ever seen on my eight plus years in the council a more convoluted piece of legislation. The plastic bag ban did pass, but no one from the public saw the amendments before the vote. County Executive Johnny Oshevsky didn't see them either. Mm, doesn't yeah. inspire confidence, no, does it? No, yeah. It doesn't. And you know, the council kept getting snarled on this whole plastic uh, bag ban business. I mean, just before the law was going to go into effect November 1st, uh, council made a last-minute change that would allow liquor stores to be exempt from the ban, and County Executive Oshevsky vetoed that, and then the council overrode that veto, so liquor stores are now exempt. All right, so staying on this uh, council confusion here for a second, sure. Council Chairman Julian Jones uh, here in Baltimore County got an old-fashioned smackdown from his fellow council members just this week. He proposed some last-minute amendments regarding the Inspector General's office. What happened there? Yeah, uh, Jones, you may remember, has been twice investigated by the Inspector General, Kelly Madigan, and he proposed amendments to legislation designed to strengthen her office, which Madigan and others said would actually weaken it instead. And in this case, Tom, it was kind of interesting. The, the amendments were leaked to the news media, including yours truly, and the council delayed voting on them for a couple of weeks. And in that time, uh, council members heard from hundreds of people who didn't like what Jones wanted to do. So when the final, final vote happened on Monday night, Jones realized he had zero support on the county council, probably wouldn't have even gotten a second on what he wanted to do. So he backed off, dropped the amendments, and the original legislation strengthened the inspector general's office passed unanimously. unanimously. And you know, and as messy as that was, and it was, you could make an argument that's actually how it should happen. You know, the amendments are put out there. The public gets a chance to see them. Council members get a chance to debate them publicly and then let the chips fall where they may. And so that's actually what happened with this inspector general, general's business. The public found out about it because it got leaked to the news media. It'd be nice if the council just took care of that <laughs> themselves instead of us having to leak it. But uh, in the end... They got a good look at it. People didn't like it. Council members heard from hundreds of people, and they ditched the whole thing. Yeah, and he was certainly flying solo on that one. So you also reported a wonderful story, John, about a master falconer. You uh, introduced us to a guy named Dan Vitilio of Kingsville. He keeps exotic birds and animals. He even has a potbelly pig. He's a master falconer. He offered, I guess, to use his hawks that he has to assist the county uh, with their landfill. How did that work? That's wild. Let's listen a little bit. Take a spin in Dan Vitellio's golf cart around his backyard in Kingsville in northeastern Baltimore County, and you'll see a wild, noisy, exotic collection of animals. I see you peeking around. Come on. Hey, baby. There's a kangaroo coming at you. That's Rue the kangaroo, and then there's the zebra named Wild Child. 
There also are pheasants, a peacock, and a pot-bellied pig named Bacon. Come on, Bacon. Let's go. Name's Bacon? Yep. <laughs> His name's Bacon. Yep. It'll never be Bacon. Vitilio is also a master falconer. Been doing this for 41 years, and I live and breathe birds of prey. He has several falcons and hawks. Early last year, Vitilio made a trip to the county landfill in White Marsh to dump some trash and saw hundreds of birds gorging, then pooping. Nick Rodericks is the chief of the county's Solid Waste Management Bureau. He came out, and I think he was dumping one day at the landfill, and he was like, there are birds everywhere, and I know that my hawk could help with this. So at the time, we were like, yeah, definitely. Like, if you want to come show us how it works, that would be really neat. Well, sadly, I can report to you, at least for the hawk anyway, the hawk does not have a part-time job at the landfill. Oh, that's yeah, too bad. Because it's, as always, with local government, it comes down to budgets, right? And so, so far, the uh, the falconer and the count, uh, county have not been able to come to terms uh, on and on some sort of a, an agreement on paying them so that, so that the hawk can be there. All right. Well, there you go. And by the way, that was Nick Rodericks, who is Baltimore's son, columnist Dan Rodericks' son. <laughs> That's right. Who is the head of uh, Solid Waste up in Baltimore County. Well, John Lee, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Matt Bush, always a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, we will have more with the WIPR News team when this year-end edition of the Midday News Wrap continues after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WIPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on our show tomorrow, it's the midday Christmas Eve special. In anticipation of Christmas on Monday, we will enjoy some music and poetry and stories of the season tomorrow on a special edition of Midday. And if you've just joined us today, we're looking back at some of the big stories of 2023 in this year-end edition of the Midday News Wrap. Joining me now is Emily Hofstetter, who covers City Hall and all things Baltimore. Good to see you, Emily. Happy holidays. Hey, happy holidays. And you know all about winter solstices because you spent a bunch of time in Alaska. <laughs> I so did. You know about dark days and uh, long nights, indeed. So this is kind of for amateurs, isn't it? Honestly, here? I think they feel darker here. Really? I don't know how. I think it, I just I think it's the gray, this mid Atlantic gray scale. Well, it could be because in Alaska sometimes I mean the sun comes up at 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. and it goes down at three. Right? Yeah, we had three hours of daylight where I lived. Oof, <laughs> that's pretty wild. All right, so one issue that you focused on here during this year and most recently at a city council hearing is housing. Take us back to the summer. Tell us about your reporting on housing in the historically black area of Sharp Leadenhall. Yeah, so that's tied into a um, really significant piece of legislation that was passed in City Hall just last month. Um, It's called uh, inclusionary housing. They've been working on that for two years. And um, basically what that means is that any new development, um, well, starting from when the mayor actually signs the law, he said that he will, but hasn't yet. 
Uh, up to 15% will have to be um, reserved for people that make um, below 50% of the average median income. I'm really, you know, kind of summarizing it tightly here. But for, you know, lower middle income um, residents and to go over to that historic neighborhood, um, Sharp Lennonhall, um, one of the nation's oldest historically black communities um, in South Baltimore, where there's been a lot of development. And so they were really big advocates for this um, law because they, you know, are trying to keep uh, people from getting priced out of the neighborhood with all of that development. And, uh, you know, inclusionary housing, uh, a big deal. What do you think that's going to mean for development coming to the city? Are the, are the developers behind this? Um, you know, they they have some reservations. I've talked to a few of them. But as part of that, there is also an accompanying tax credit. So basically, Baltimore has to make up the, dif- the difference to the developers between the market rate and that affordable rate. So they're not you know, really losing out too much on this. Yeah, they're going to they're make their money one way or the other. That's right. Um, our city, of course, also experienced a devastating mass shooting in the Brooklyn homes. 30 people were shot, two were killed. Most of the victims in that shooting, of course, were young people. Um, so, M, you spent a lot of time talking to the folks who live in the Brooklyn homes, and you spoke with parents who are bonding and healing by participating in, a, of all things, a fashion show. And you spent time with Donna Bruce. She's a hairstylist who lost her son, Devin, uh, a few years ago. She was inspired to start a fashion show for grieving parents and community members. Here's part of your report. The models strut down the runway, wearing local Baltimore designers and others from as far away as Atlanta and Las Vegas. Some silhouettes are whimsical, sort of steampunk. Others are modern and gender non-conforming. Portraits of the dead being honored scroll across a screen above the runway. And the models have their own stories too, like Carl Rogers. Well, I had a father who was, he was addicted to drugs like all his childhood growing up in adulthood. So, but he's a recovering addict now, doing well, thriving in the community, so. Crystal Gonzalez spoke at a panel during the event. She lost her daughter, Aaliyah, in July in the Brooklyn Homes mass shooting. For Gonzalez, every day is still surreal, but events like this one do help. It's just a really beautiful um, expression to honor the families of our bereaved loved ones. It's just amazing. I never would have thought I would be here four and a half months later. This is this is not my life, but it turns out now this is my life. So um, I'm really honored to be here and be invited tonight. Yeah, you know, just hearing the pain that was in uh, her voice and, and the voices of all the folks you talked to. You spent a lot of time there. I mean, Emily, what's your, your sort of takeaway from uh, that experience in, in that community? Well, I was actually just down there last night, Tom, for the holidays. Um, uh, you know, my takeaway from the community is that they are trying to move on. There's a lot of resources that are being still poured into that area. And from the parents that I spoke to at the fashion show, both that have lost their uh, family to gun violence and to um, addiction. I, I think the takeaway is their commitment back to the community. Almost all of them have thrown themselves into service work to others, whether that be um, anti-gun violence work or um, becoming peer navigators through those systems. Um, 
I, you know, for, for me, that's really just something that's that sticks with me is how much they have turned that grief towards helping other people. Yeah, that's a great impulse. I mean, that's a wonderful thing about that community and about our city. When things like this happen, people turn it into something that, you know, they, they, their first impulse is to just help. Yeah. Uh, and that's great. Well, thank you for all the great reporting you've done this year. We appreciate it, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Emily Hofstetter from the WIPR News Team. If you've just joined us, it's the year-end edition of the Midday News Wrap. I'm Tom Hall. I'm speaking with some of my colleagues from the WIPR Newsroom about some of the big stories that they covered here in 2023. Next up is Bree Hatch. She is WIPR's education reporter. Happy holidays, Bree. Happy holidays. And you just joined us as a reporter for AmeriCorps, a Report for AmeriCorps member. Uh, and you covered education issues both in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. One story you did concerned the loss of funding for child care providers. What did you find out? Yeah, so um, this is a big deal coming up on the legislative session next, next year. Um, basically, American Rescue Plan funding, emergency funding for child care providers expired at the end of September. Um, and so what we're seeing now is a lot of child care providers and parents um, struggling to access those services and stay afloat um, with what they describe as razor thin margins. So without that funding, um, you know, some centers have had to increase tuition, therefore losing um, students, kids at their center. Um, and that just, you know, tightens the budget even further. Yeah, hugely important story. Child care is just so fundamental to so many things, the economy and people's lives. And uh, for the longest time after COVID, when so many of those places went out of business, even they, they you know, just getting a spot for your kid in a child care place could be very, very difficult. Um, Baltimore City Schools actually had some good news recently. The latest scores in the city are actually higher this year than last year, so that's nice to hear. You also reported on another positive note this school year, and it was about the start of a middle school sports program that actually features even a non-traditional sport. Over 250 middle schoolers packed the starting line at Druid Hill Park Monday afternoon, waiting for Mayor Brandon Scott to start the 1.5-mile race. On your mark. For the first time this year, Baltimore City Public Schools will host seven sports programs for preteens, including flag football, volleyball, and bocce. City Schools CEO Sonia Santelisa said the expanded programming will offer opportunities to all 6th through 8th graders. Including expanding girls' um, opportunities and for our students with disabilities and promote physical well-being. The district is now looking for independent contractors to direct their own sports programs for city middle schoolers. That's terrific. Bocce ball in middle school. Who knew? That's fantastic. They should hang out down in Little Italy, right down the block from Vaccaro's. They can learn a lot from uh, the folks down there. So what, what's your, your take on everybody's response to the, to the addition of sports programs? I'm delighted to see sports and arts coming back to school. Yeah, I think um, the kids are definitely excited. I had a lot of them approach me when I was holding my microphone at the, the first meet just to be like, this is the best day of my life. So um, they're clearly very excited. And I think I think a lot of the, you know, school leaders understand the importance of having these extracurricular activities available for all middle school students just to, you know, get them outside, get them moving, get them inspired. So. Yeah, inspired indeed. And of course, you know, to play on these teams uh, in the high school level, in the middle school level, you got to keep your grades up. So it's a great incentive to, you know, to do well, do your homework. So that's terrific. Well, thanks for all your reporting and we look forward to more of it in the, ne in the near future. 
Thank you. That's Bree Hatch from our newsroom. We turn now to Scott Malcioni. He covers matters related to health at WIPR. Good to see you, Scott. Great to be here. So we cannot overlook one of the biggest stories in Baltimore this year, which, of course, is the report on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. It was written by the Maryland Attorney General's Office, Elizabeth Embry, who's now actually in the legislature, uh, was the, the main author of that report. What are your thoughts uh, about how that report really changed the dynamics of this this heartbreaking story. I don't think that many sexual assault survivors would be where they are in terms of trying to find some vindication uh, without that report. And what we saw was the Child Victims Act go through the legislative cycle this last year, which allowed people who were abused in certain institutions to sue that institution in perpetuity. So, you know, if you come to your, uh, you know, understanding of your abuse you know, at 50 years old and you were abused at 20, well, you can still uh, go ahead and sue, you know, even 30 years later. So uh, unfortunately, when it comes to the Catholic Church, they filed for bankruptcy, which is a way that many of the advocates for the survivors say they circumvented this law. And the most recent update is now that uh, these people will have until May 31st to file their claim. So they will not be able to sue or file a claim into perpetuity to get restitution for their abuse. Uh, That's going to be tough for them. And at this point, we're still trying to figure out how the Catholic Church, how much money it has in order to pay out to these uh, survivors. Right now, uh, they claim to have about a quarter of a billion dollars, but some think that they may have uh, shunted some of that money off to parishes before they really did the total tally, and there could be some more money hiding around uh, Maryland somewhere. Yeah. So again, if you are a victim of uh, sexual abuse, And if this is something that you want to pursue in terms of legal action, there is a deadline now, and that's May 31st. You've got to file your your information by then when, of course, you will stay on top of this story as it uh, continues to evolve. And we appreciate that, Scott. Another story that garnered a whole lot of interest this year was about the legalization of recreational cannabis. I know that when we talk about recreational cannabis here on Midday, the phone lines light up. People, (laughs) People have a lot to say about it, a lot to think about it. Let's listen to a little bit of your story. From the outside, Salon House looks like a medical office building. It has a brick facade and shares its space with a dentist and a hair braiding studio. But once you open the door, a glass case of colorful bongs greets you as a DJ blasts reggae music. Gloria Jones is 80 years old, in a wheelchair, and smoking a joint. I'm very surprised at how it is, but it's great. The lounge has swinging chairs and vendors showing off smoking products. Just to be able to come out and socialize with, you know, with other people who are doing the same thing that you like to do. Jones is sitting with Sherry White, a middle-aged woman who's also a medical patient. I'm constantly in pain, and so I don't really go out at all. I really like this. I really do. I'm glad it's a place to socialize and take your medicine as well. Great story because, you know, we think about this in terms of, well, there's the recreational stuff and the tax revenue it's going to generate, supposedly, and we have the medical uh, issues and, you know, even uh, Western medicine, you know, warming up to the idea of uh, prescribing it to uh, alleviate pain as you, you talk to one of your uh, the folks in that story. But why do you think this th- that this particular issue just resonates so strongly? This really gets big reactions. This story, your stories on this got a lot of reaction. As I said, when we talk about it here on this show, we, we get a lot of reaction as well. Yeah, you know, as, as much as marijuana has been around since the beginning of, of human history, I think there's still a little bit of a faux pas in there. And so people like to, uh, you know, think about it, talk about it and uh, figure out, you know, if they can use it and uh, try to use it when they, they want to. And uh, 
knowing that it's now legal, it's been more accessible for people and they've been able to use it in, in ways that has been helpful for some people in terms of creams uh, for, to alleviate pain or to, like many of these people, um, you know, take care of other other issues that they have. And uh, so I, I think a lot of people are curious about it and maybe that's why it's it's really kind of caught on as a, a subject of interest. Yeah, and of course, this is another continuing story because the uh, the industry is, uh, you know, finding its way and regulations are going to be tweaked. And uh, so I know you will stay on top of it. And of course, lots of folks are going to be traveling this holiday season. Uh, and if we spend any time at BWI Airport, we will be in the presence of greatness, evidently, when we use... The bathroom. The bathroom of all places. Evidently, the best bathrooms in American airports are at BWI. You took a trip there to find out what all the fuss was about. Here's part of your report. BWI's bathrooms on Concourse B are brightly lit with natural light. They have lights above the stalls that tell you what you're occupied, and the stall doors reach all the way to the floor. We also put in sensors for our custodial staff that would actually tell them where we're running low on soap. Paul Schenk, BWI's chief engineer, says the toilet paper rolls have high-tech sensors, too. And he's probably spent more time thinking about bathrooms in the last couple years than many of us will in our lives. Shank and his team conducted surveys, talked to custodial staff, studied innovative restroom designs, and even thought through the best cleaning processes for BWI's $55 million bathroom overhaul. Covering it all, Scott. That's good. So, have you, have you been back to the bathrooms? Have they maintained? I, I have. I was flying back from the West Coast. I did a little uh, toothbrushing before coming into an office uh, here, office meeting here. So, uh, I, I had a great time. Well lit, very clean. Had a great time in there. Yeah, I've actually, you know, been in in the restrooms there recently as well. And uh, I think the hype is worth it. I mean, it, it, it's it's justified. It's Absolutely. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right, Scott Malcioni. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Bree Hatch. Thank you, Emily Hofstetter. Thank you. Happy holidays to all, and we. We'll see you in the new year. All right, quick break, and then when we return, theater critic Jay Wynn Russick will join me with a review of a new show at Baltimore's Everyman Theater. It's a whodunit called Dial M for Murder. And before we go to a break, this programming note for next week on New Year's Eve, I'll be participating in the 31st annual Interfaith Prayer Celebration at the historic St. Ignatius Church in Baltimore. This is a gathering of people from the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Buddhist faith traditions, along with some elected officials, to offer prayer of thanks for the blessings of the past year and prayers for continued blessing in the new year. There'll be great music and dance performed by the St. Ignatius Choir and the Divine Language Dance Ministry. The music starts at 8 o'clock. The program begins at 8.30 on New Year's Eve. It'll last about an hour. It's a great way to kick off the new year, and I hope you will join us New Year's Eve at St. Ignatius Church. It is my custom to take some time near the end of the year to remember briefly some of the people in our area who have passed away over the past 12 months. This is by no means an exhaustive list of all the people we've lost in our community. These are simply people I have befriended over the years, and I simply want to remember them and give thanks for the blessing of their friendship. In January... I was shocked to learn that Alan Kaufman had been murdered in his home in Virginia. I met Alan in the 1980s. He was a former housing executive, a passionate Orioles fan, and a quirky, hilarious, and gifted guy. He died saving the life of his wife, Monica, when she was attacked by a family member who was having a mental health crisis. He is missed by many. 
Alan Kaufman, was 68 years old. We lost two wonderful musicians with whom I had the pleasure of working many times during my career as a conductor. Ed Goldstein was a terrific tuba player, and Ed Walters was a wonderful woodwind player. Both were dedicated advocates for musicians and for the organized labor movement. Ed Goldstein passed away in January at the age of 68. Ed Walters died in March. He was 77 years old. Harry Lord, a friend whose interests were wide-ranging and eclectic, died in January at the age of 84. Harry was a terrific lawyer, a former Maryland Deputy Attorney General, who loved literature and the arts and the environment, and whose advocacy for any number of civic and cultural organizations moved the needle in Baltimore and beyond. Harry was rambunctious and fun, and he and his wife Sarah have made things in this community immeasurably better. In April, Francis Peck, who we all knew as Fifi, died peacefully at the age of 97. I knew Fifi as the mother of a dear friend and as a great lover of music. For nearly 50 years, Fifi never missed a concert of the Baltimore Choral Arts Society. For 35 of those years, I was the conductor of those shows. I used to joke that Fifi came to more of my concerts than I did. And any artist will tell you that that kind of interest and attention to one's work is invaluable and inspirational beyond words. Two formidable figures in the local art scene passed away this year. Jackie Copeland, a gifted museum professional, a former director of the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture, and chair of the Maryland State Arts Council, died in September at the age of 76. And Ed Brody, a businessman who was the animating force behind the renovation of the Lyric Theater, passed away in October. He was 89 years old. In addition to his work preserving the Lyric, Ed was a tireless advocate for the Enoch Pratt Library, the city school system, and MedStar Hospital. The internationally acclaimed conductor Yuri Temerkanov was the music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra from 2000 to 2006. He passed away last month at the age of 84. He was admired and respected around the world. I had the great honor of preparing choruses for him for several memorable performances, including his final concerts in Baltimore, a rendition of Mahler's Second Symphony that anyone who heard them will never forget. For the blessing of knowing all of these bright lights in our community, I am grateful for what they've meant to me and to the city they enlivened so wonderfully. May they rest in peace. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 881 WIPR.